You're listening to Retro Sermons, timeless lessons from the Bible spoken by voices of the past. He wants to get me on tape, and if anybody wants to listen to it, there will be no problems. The tapes will be made available, Watergate or no Watergate. For the last uh, two days here, we have been studying some of the problems that the church faces in our day. And in doing this, sometimes we become so interested in the truths that we lose sight of the forest. There is a truism that one cannot see the forest for the trees. This morning we want to take a look at the forest. Because during these past 50 years, during the time that I have been a member of the Lord's Church, I have seen the church engaged in controversy over nearly every conceivable subject. Way back in the 1920s, brethren were still arguing over whether it's permissible to have uh, Sunday school literature. Matter of fact, I have heard debates over whether or not it is permitted for a church even to have a Bible school. And I've known brethren to become involved in every kind of controversy. Within late years, some of the churches in California became quite concerned over whether or not it's possible, permitted to have the Lord's Supper on Sunday evening. And then there have been those who have insisted that it must be after dark because everybody knows supper comes at at the evening. You don't have supper at 11 o'clock in the morning. And if it's the Lord's Supper, it's got to be in the evening. Then in California also, you can get everything out there. In California, uh, some of the brethren got concerned about the uh, singing songs of invitation. They said, where in the Bible do we have, where do we have authority for an invitation song? Well, they worked that out by an invitation song to an encouragement song. So now then, they sing songs to encourage, not to invite the sinner, but to encourage him to come. Went through some of the song books, and uh, well, when the center is addressed as your brother, will you not, dear brother, come to Jesus? They changed it. Will you not, dear sinner, come? Because he's not our brother. And how can we call him our brother when he's not? People engaged in a wide variety of, of issues, problems. 
And I've seen these things happen during the last 50 years. Now, I want to talk about something of a more general nature. The movement, the movement of the Lord's Church from what sociologists call a sect. I don't have any apology to make at all for being a member of what men call a sect. I'm not a sect. I'm not a sectarian. But I, but I am a member of that which men call a sect. I'll take my text from Acts chapter 24, verse 14. Where Paul said, But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call a sect, so said I the God of our fathers. And I want to use this board here. I'll put up the word sir, and over on the other side, I'll put the word denomination. And my lesson this morning will be to trace the history during this last 50 years how the large church has moved from what men call a sect to what men call a denomination. Now, of course, you understand that I won't accept either of these designations, the signs of the Lord's Church, but this is the way the world would describe it. An eminent German historian, as a sociologist, who is an authority in the field, has given the characteristics of what the world calls a sect. And here's what they are. He says a sect is made up of people who ordinarily are poor people, but who have a firm belief that they are the true church of God. A sect is made up of people who believe that they are the true church of God, but they are exclusive. They believe that nobody else is the true church of God. They are the true church. Ordinarily, a sect is characterized by an attitude of strict morality. If somebody gets out of line, they withdraw from him. The old expression was, they, they church him. They church him. They put him out of the church. A sect is made of the people who are intensely, intensely dogmatic and intolerant of everything contrary doctrinally. They think they have the truth that this is of God. And consequently, everything contrary to it is out of the default. Well, a, a sect also is made up of people who are who are inclined to be of the lower classes in uh, economic wealth. 
the rich people, the rich people do not usually have any interest in this kind of religion. There are people who are ordinarily intensely interested in the future and not much interested in the present. They, they cannot really get worked up over the social problems of our day because they look for the city who's building they're looking to heaven. It is that I say ambitions are set on heaven and not on this earth. There are people who generally uh, the congregation generally participates in the service. I mean by that that many men in the group will participate. They'll make speeches, they'll teach classes, they'll lead the prayers, they'll preach sermons, and the, the congregation as such participates. They are intensely evangelistic. They have a strong desire to win God. They have a strong desire to win conflict. And they have a, a sort of a persecution, what the world would call a persecution complex. That is, the whole world is against them. We are God's children. We are in the world. We're not of the world. And we are different. Now then, a denomination, on the other hand, is likely to be composed of people who are more affluent. They are higher in the economic scale. They've got more money. They are, are near the center of culture. They're not out on the periphery. They are, they are more sophisticated. Generally, more educated in the worldly sense. And, and their moral standards are the standards of the community. They will not withdraw from a man who is socially acceptable to the community. He may be divorced three, four, five times, and uh, he may have a, a scandalous reputation for dishonesty, but if he is socially acceptable to the community, then the denomination doesn't withdraw from How many, how many times have you known of a big, rich, affluent denomination withdrawing from any member because of his moral life? You don't find it. A denomination does not have congregational participation. It has a professional, trained ministry. A denomination looks to the present more than to the future. The Unitarians, I think, are a good example. Uh, a few years ago, over here at Selma, in your neighboring state, they had a, a march. Uh, almost over, over busing, what? Uh, I mean, integrating the bus line. Something of the sort. Anyhow, uh, some uh, young men came down from one of the northern states to participate in this, and one of them was killed. He was a Unitarian preacher. And his friend and co-worker who preached the funeral sermon 
thought he was paying him a high compliment when he said of this man who had been killed, said he couldn't have cared less whether his parishioners were headed for heaven or for hell. He was concerned in seeing that they had a square meal and a good place to sleep. I just thought this was highly complimentary to the preacher who had been killed. He couldn't have cared less about heaven or hell. His point was he didn't believe in heaven or hell. He was concerned that the people he served had a square meal under their belts and a good place to sleep at night. The denominational concept is much more concerned in this present world than it is in the world to come. And they have a, a success philosophy. They don't feel isolated from the world. They're in the world and of the world. Now then, the Church of Christ has moved inexorably from the world concept of a sect to the world concept of a denomination. Let me show you what has happened. It should not surprise us. It should not surprise us for a moment to find that the, the large church in the first century was made up of poor people. Poor people. And that's exactly what we would expect from the, from the scripture. Uh, for example, In the in the in the tenth chapter of Mark, as he was going forth into the way, they ran one to him and kneeled to him and, and asked him, "Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life?" And Jesus said unto him, "Why callest thou me good? None is good save one, even God." Thou knowest the commandments, do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he said unto him, Teacher, all these things shall I observe from thy youth. And Jesus, looking upon him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But his countenance fell as the saying, and he went away sorrowful, for he was one that had great possessions. Now look. And Jesus looked round about him and said unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his word. But Jesus answered again and said unto them, Children, how hard, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. He didn't say it was impossible, but it was difficult. How hardly shall they that trust in riches enter into the kingdom of God. And again, when Paul wrote to the first Corinthians uh, to the Corinthians in the first letter, he said, Behold your calling, brethren, that not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God chose the foolish things of the world that he might put to shame them that are wise. And God chose the weak things of the world that he might put to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the things that are despised that God choose. 
Yea, and the things that are not, that he might bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should grow before God. Uh, I'm simply saying this. It should not surprise us that the gospel has its chief appeal to what we would call the underprivileged, the poor, the burdened, the outcast, the sorrowful, the depressed peoples of the world. It's always been so. And consequently, when the church begins to be filled with people who are not poor, who are affluent, who are worldly-wise, sophisticated, who are the leaders in society, the kind of church that the apostles set forth, that kind of religion simply doesn't appeal to them. What do they do? They don't leave the church. They change the church. They change the church. At the turn of the century, well, let, let's go back. A hundred years ago, when Alexander Campbell began to preach on the frontiers, he appealed to the common people, the frontiersmen, the farmers, the ordinary people. They heard him. And hundreds of them, and eventually thousands of them, became members of the body of Christ. They erected little frame buildings out on the frontier. Crude, primitive, simple, but they had a, an earnest, fervent worship. They were enthusiastic. They were evangelistic. They were highly emotional. A spiritually-minded church. But that generation passed. And their sons and their grandsons made up the church. Their sons were not poor. Their grandsons were not poor. These young people had gone off to college. They had prospered. They had become affluent. And the church that their fathers and grandfathers had, the religion which had met their needs, simply didn't appeal to these people. It was inevitable that as the character of the membership changed, it was inevitable that the church moved from what the world calls a sect to a denominational status. And those who have insight and understanding can perceive that. That the church has become more and more worldly-minded. Let me give you a case in point. In the mid-1920s, that's 50 years ago, well, not quite that, 45 years ago, I entered David Lipscomb College. That's where I, I met my wife. Uh, she was a school girl. The school was poor. The, the young people who came there were poor. So far as I know, we had about 400 students at that time. I think maybe we had one girl who, whose parents had given her a car. That was the only car on the campus that the students owned. All right. My wife 
and I visited Nashville every once in a while. We were in Nashville not very long ago, and downtown, my wife ran into one of our old schoolmates, and they got to reminiscing, and this girl said, oh, how great it is to be a member of the Church of Christ in Nashville now. So you remember when we used to be in school out at Lipson College? Uh, everybody was from the wrong side of the tracks. We were poor. People would go to church. They would drive their buggies and their old hacks and maybe ride up on their mules. And once in a while, somebody would drive an old Model T Ford. And, and we were really, we were really from the wrong side of the tracks. Nashville has a place we call Varmintown. And uh, my wife was born in Varmint Town. She still gets mad when I say anything about it. But uh, uh, the members of the church were poor, unsophisticated, unworldly, but highly spiritual. This girl said to my wife, this, this woman, now, said, you know, it's a great thing to belong to the church in Nashville now because you ride around town on Sunday morning and the churches of Christ have as nice a buildings as anybody in town. Presbyterians, Baptists, Catholics, nobody has nicer buildings than we have. This has been, this has been four or five years ago. Of course, I got one better than all now. Somebody, somebody told me it cost two and a half million dollars, the, the newest one that's been built there. And, and now then, when you drive around among the churches of Christ, instead of seeing uh, an old country hack tied up out here somewhere, a mule, you see Cadillacs, and you see Continentals, and you see Jewish. And uh, you see Mercedes, you, and uh, and the richest people in town now go to the Church of Christ. We are the leaders. The mayor of the city is a member of the Church of Christ. Of course, he was also a member of the Presbyterian Church at the same time. Uh, he, he got a, he got a coming and going. But uh, she said it's a it's a great thing. It's a great. It gives you a good feeling to belong to the Church of Christ now. And the most prominent people in the business world, and in sports, and in the entertainment field, these are people who are in the Church of Christ now. Billy Thalester, Pat Moon, uh, Jim Ryan, uh, two years ago Bobby Mara, Olympic winner. I don't think Mark Mark Spitzer thinks is a Jewish boy, but but anyhow. Uh, best, the, the, the best athletes in the world, some of them are members of the Church of Christ. It's a great thing to belong to the Church. You see, the, the whole character of a change, change. Many years ago, 20 years ago, I was present for the dedication of the great Broadway church building in Lubbock, Texas. I preached my first sermon in the Broadway church when I was 17 years old. Uh, and, and I was present about 20 years ago when they dedicated their big new building. The tower, the tower cost $40,000. Uh, and uh, in, uh, I was in a meeting out at, uh, in Lubbock not long after this and staying downtown in the hotel. And one day I happened to be riding on the elevator with one of the elders from the 
Skillman Avenue Church. They were in the process of building Skillman Avenue. And we're pretty good friends, been friends for a long, long time. And uh, as we were going down on the elevator, he said, well, Broadway Church has the biggest building among the churches of Christ, but at Skillman Avenue, we're determined that we're going to have the prettiest. And uh, regardless of what cost, we're going to have the most decorated and the most attractive. We'll have cushioned pews. We'll have plush carpets. We'll have decorated windows. We're going to have the most attractive building among any of the churches of the Lord. Anywhere. Well, I've been in the Stillman Avenue Church, and uh, they do have a very plush building. But let me tell you what happened. As the church members have changed, the church has changed. The church has changed. And we are moving more and more and more toward a denominational status. How many churches of Christ do you know now who would, who would really consider a preacher in the pulpit as a regular worker who didn't have a high school education? You wouldn't know any. Now, now this, this man may know the Bible. He may have memorized the whole Bible. He may be a marvelous teacher. He may be a godly man. He may be one who is, who is tremendously effective in leading others to Christ. But if he doesn't have, well really, if he doesn't have a college degree, uh, rather than just passing by, whatever else he has, it's not enough. We want an educated, professional ministry. With the, in the big churches, we want the, the head preacher. And then as one told me, he was the assistant, the head preacher and the tail preacher. Uh, he says, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not the head preacher. He says, I'm the one that gets all the hard work to do. I'm, I'm way on down the scale. But uh, we're, we're seeking an educated ministry. When I was preaching in the church in uh, Denver, Colorado, we had a, a dear old brother there who been through about the, the sixth grade, but he was, he was an old timer. And he, he went off somewhere down in the southeastern part of the state to visit. And when he got back, I said, well, Brother Brian, did you preach down there? Did the brother ask you to preach? And he said, no, no, them people down there don't believe in no educated ministry and they wouldn't let me preach for them. But, uh, but, but we, we put emphasis on worldly education. One time the church at uh, Denton, Texas was looking for a preacher. And that's where there were two colleges there, uh, Texas Women's College and uh, another state college. So they asked Oscar Smith up there to, quote, try out. Well, he, you see, the college, one of the college presidents was a member of the church, and several of the teachers were members, and, and a great many of the students came. Uh, and uh, they had let the word get out, we don't want anybody here whose English is not absolutely impeccable. And, and Brother Smith started in, he said, well, I hear you preachers, you, you people up here looking for an educated preacher. And said, of course, I don't want to be making no brags, 
But I've been preaching for 32 years, and in all that time, I ain't never made but two grammatical errors. And I've taken both of them back just as quick as I've seen or done it. Uh, uh, of course, he was ridding them a little bit uh, about their, their, their educated preacher. The Church of Christ has moved from the simplicity of the apostolic age to a denominational status. Now, in that move, and the move's inevitable, in that move, we're reenacting something that has happened over and over and over again. A few years ago, I read a series of editorials in the old Gospel Advocate written by David Mitchell. And, and here's what he said. He said, it's a sad thing, but a true thing, that the people of God, over and over again through their history, have had this sort of a development. First of all, they, they start out as a small group, and then they get a little bit bigger, and bigger, and then they come to an apostasy. But in every apostasy, there'll be a few who will remain faithful, and they'll start out again, and after a while, they'll begin to increase, and then we have another apostasy. And then from that, another group will start out, uh, a few will remain faithful, and they'll start out again, then they begin to grow, and we have another apostasy. And he said, this, this is the history of God's people always. And it always has been and probably always will be. Alexander Campbell and his followers appeal to the common people, the religion they preach, a heaven-centered religion, heaven-centered appeal to these people. They look for the city whose builder and maker is God. But their children and their grandchildren, more affluent, more worldly wise, more satisfied with the things of this earth, didn't have much interest in going to heaven. And so the Christian church denomination started, leaving only a remnant faithful to the Lord, as I, as I said the other night, in 1900, there were less than 12 men in the whole world, less than, less than a dozen men in the whole world who were devoting their full time to preaching the gospel. And now then, when the last figure I saw, there were probably 10 or 12,000. But what happens is that as the church becomes more affluent, it loses sight of its spiritual mission and becomes enmeshed in the things of this earth. I will repeat one of the things that I said last night. We are seeking, we are seeking to have things of a worldly nature which appeal to worldly pride. We want nice buildings, big ones, attractive, impressive. 
We want things to which we can point. Hospitals, benevolent organizations, great cooperative schemes. How well I remember when the hail of truth first got underway. I heard a gospel preacher say, Now then, now then, the nations of the world will have to sit up and take notice that the Church of Christ has arrived. Arrived where? The nations of the world, we, we can wield enough political power that the nations of the world will sit up and take notice that the Church of Christ has arrived. And in one of the Gospel papers, some brother was, was urging the, the brethren to evangelism, and he said, within a few years, if we really work at the job, we can convert enough people that we can actually swing the balance of power politically, and what a fine thing it would be to elect a president from the Church of Christ. Well, we had one once, his name was James Garfield. And we had another one once whose name was Lyndon Baines Johnson, only he was in the Christian church. Uh, what difference does it make? I'm, I'm simply saying to you that the Church of Christ has moved and is moving to a denominational status, and many of our brethren are perfectly willing now to acknowledge that. I read it reading from uh, one of them last evening or, or yesterday. In one of the services here, Brother Logan Fox, who was for a number of years president of Ibaraki Christian College, supported by the Union Avenue Church in Memphis, uh, Brother Fox says, we are a denomination and we might as well recognize it, take our place among our sister denominations. Uh, and the very idea that we are the only church, he says, that's absurd. God has children in all the churches and the invisible church of Christ. The invisible body of Christ is made up of the fine Christian people in all the churches, and this idea that the church of Christ is exclusively God's people, he said that's absurd, and that's only held by ignorant people. Ignorant people. Well, for whatever it's worth, I'm exactly like Paul. I confess that after the way which they call a sect, the New Testament church, I worship God. I make no apology for it. I, I, have no, I have no desire and no thought, no interest in trying to impress the world. My desire is to save myself and as many others as I can reach. This world is not my home. I'm a stranger and a sojourner here. I'll soon be through with it. And I'll leave it with little regret. I seek for the city whose builder and maker is God. And to this East Columbus church, my plea would be set your affections on things above and not on things on the earth. We have seen, we have seen within the last 25 years, a rupture come within the Church of Christ that's irreparable. It will, it, it will not be bridged. And the brethren who have devoted themselves 
to the big projects, making a name for the church, will go on and, and 25 years from now, they will gladly accept denominational status and will wonder what on earth the argument is all about. Why should we not say we're a denomination? They will have abandoned all thought of defending their position by the scriptures, exactly as the Christian church has done. Can you find, can you find a preacher in the Christian church, in the liberal Christian church anywhere, who will want to argue with you that the Bible uh, on instrumental music or the Missionary Society? Well, of course not. He says it makes no difference. It makes no difference. We're serving God according to our understanding and our needs, and you are a literal, uh, a literalist trying to bind upon us literal biblical teaching. Way back when the Missionary Society was started, some of them said, you ask us, where is the scripture for it? There is no scripture for it, and we don't need any. We don't need any. As Brother Clay Fulius, president of Lipscomb College, wrote a tract not long ago, there is no pattern. There is no pattern for church cooperation. Therefore, whatever we want to do is perfectly all right. We have freedom. And let us not be bound by the traditions and the old ideas of the past. Now, in all of these things, I'm simply saying unto you, the church of Christ is changing. My father, during the years that he lived, was a prolific writer to both the Fun Foundation and the Gospel Advocate, the papers of his day. And during the last 15 to 20 years of his life, he calls nearly every article he wrote with this expression, Brethren, we are drifting. Right, right. Brethren, we are drifting. It was a warning that wasn't heeded. It, it wasn't really understood. And probably wasn't believed. But we have drifted. And the irreparable rupture that has come in the large church will finally result in a new denomination which probably will be able to achieve a union of sorts with the conservative Christian church. Matter of fact, movements are already underway looking to that end. There have been meetings in both Memphis and St. Louis within the last two or three years looking for a union of the liberal churches of Christ with the conservative element in the Christian church. The Christian church has split again, of course, as you probably know. And many of them have gone on into ultra-liberalism. Others have drawn back and, and there perhaps will be an eventual union of the liberal churches of Christ with a conservative Christian church in which instrumental music and the missionary societies will be worked out on a congregational basis. They recognize one another as brethren and, and work together and the preachers will move freely from one to the other and so on. But in all of these things, our course is set. Many of us go right on back to the to the word of Joshua uh, of, uh, in, the, in the Old Testament. He said, Choose you this day whom you will serve. 
If God be God, serve him. As for me and my house, we will serve Jehovah. If you want to serve other gods, do it. But why go you halting, limping between the two? There's a fundamental thing here. Now, this afternoon, I want to deal specifically with one question. Let me ask you, during the last 25 years, since you became a Christian, how many sermons have you heard explaining why the churches of Christ do not have instrumental music? Well, I guarantee you've heard a lot of them. Because in nearly every gospel meeting, or there will be teaching on it. If not a sermon, there will be teaching on it. Now, how many churches do you know that are having a real problem right now as to whether or not they'll introduce an organ? You don't know any churches of Christ. In the same fashion, go back through your mind and, and ask yourself, how many sermons have you heard explaining why a missionary society is wrong? You haven't heard very many until within recent years. In the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, you didn't hear any sermons on that. People believed it was wrong, all right, but they didn't know why and what happened. In the 1950s, Brother came right along and adopted the Missionary Society, calling it a different name, because they had not been taught. I want to deal with that this afternoon. What is wrong with it? What principles are involved? Why not have a society? I hope you can be here. Meanwhile, are there those present this morning who, who receive the word of the Lord as from God, who are willing to stake your chances for eternity upon an understanding of it and an obedience to it? Now, our time on this earth is strictly limited. We won't be here very long. And whatever we do for eternity must be done quickly. And we need, each of us needs to make up his mind. If we want to go the denominational route, then let us do that. That there is some defense for it. There's some... They have a rationale for what they're doing. They believe that they're serving God. They defend themselves. And they say that our attitude towards the Bible is completely wrong. That it was never meant to be the kind of book we receive it. It's just not that kind of book. They defend themselves. I think they're wrong in their defense. But if that be the desire, then let it be so. But if you are determined to take the Bible as your guide, be governed and guided by thus saith the Lord, then let there be a total commitment of your life to that. What others may do or may not do should not influence you. What says the Bible? What is the Word of God? If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he speaks with the authority of God, then submit yourself to his will. Confess your faith in Christ. Be buried through baptism into the Lord's body. Raised to walk in new life. I'm pleading with you, become a Christian. Nothing more and nothing less and nothing else. And whatever time you have upon this earth, let it be spent 
in the service of God to the best of your ability doing the things the Lord says. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom, but he that doeth the will of my Father. If you will respond, make your way to the front, while we stand for Jeff and pray.
of this congregation realize its full potential. But please, in no sense, hold back your support from me because of you as an experience. Remember that young preachers have to start somewhere. Brother Kent didn't arrive on the scene with the ability and the experience that he has now. It affords us an opportunity to help a young man begin his life work. And that connection, Richard will be living in the house behind the building here and being a young man just out of college with no wife, he has no furniture. Tommy Harley has agreed to take on the responsibility of helping accumulate some pieces of furniture for Richard. He's got an art chair or a table or something like that. Please communicate that information to Tommy and Tommy will borrow either Brother Robertson's truck or Brother Lamb's truck and get some help and we'll get that furniture moved in this week. If you have something that can be used, please let Tommy Harley know about it. Are there any other announcements that need to be made? Now we'll bow and ask every mother to be